0: Since this episode was recorded, Emma Kluger has successfully completed her thesis and graduated as a PhD. Congratulations to Dr. Kluger.
1: And welcome to another episode of How Is It Really, the podcast from Sydney University History Department that pulls history apart to see how it works. I'm Nick Eckstein, a historian in the History Department at Sydney University. And as always, my co-host is Sophie Lloyd-Wilson, also a historian in the History Department at Sydney. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Nick. Well, as always, Sophie, we've got a leading question that is going to shed light and insight on a knotty historical problem. So perhaps you'd like to kick us off. What is today's question?
2: Today, we're going to ask, how did West Papuan people become invisible to the rest
1: of the world? That's an intriguing one. It's full of of exciting and open possibilities, isn't it? Um, In fact, this is an extraordinary, and I would say also a moving and poignant story about people very close to us geographically and about their struggle to create a national narrative on the part of a place about which we know very, very little and on behalf of a community that we know, I think, shockingly, uh, imperfectly, given how close we are. Before we get into all of that, though, we need to introduce our guest who's sitting and waiting patiently. So, Sophie, who are we talking to?
2: Today, we're delighted to have Emma Kluge on the show. Emma is one of our own. She's a Pacific historian Uh, who is a PhD student here in the Department of History at the University of Sydney. She researches a part of the world that as Nick said, few Australians know much about, although they should as it's on their doorstep. And that is the region of West Papua. West Papuans have long been fighting for their independence, first from the Dutch and now from Indonesia. Emma's PhD thesis tracks the West Papuan independence movement as it formed under the Dutch administration and then developed and transformed under the Indonesian government in the 1960s and 1970s. Through exploring the lives of West Papuans, she seeks to understand how the independence movement has prevailed against very considerable odds. Welcome, Emma, and thank you for being here.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: As always, Emma, we're going to start by asking our version of the question in bold capitals, the question that dwarfs all other questions. And I think it's more important than ever in your case. And that is, why did you become a historian? Emma, I'm sure you could have had a much more straightforward job. Why did you choose this particular one?
0: That's a really interesting question. I think I've always loved learning, um, from a young age, I read a lot of books and I was always asking a lot of questions. When I got to university, I carried that with me. I actually had a lot of trouble deciding what to do. I wanted to do arts and science because I figured that I could study everything. But I kind of narrowed it down and thought maybe I'll do English and history. I'll be a teacher. Then I get to just constantly keep learning. But once I got to university, I remember sitting in my first history lecture and looking up at the lecturer and just looking at her and thinking, I want that job. Um, I didn't really know what it was, but I just kind of was captivated from that moment. So my second year, I swapped into straight arts, even though I was quite uncomfortable about that. And my parents were like, what are you going to do? But I just had a feeling that I really wanted to go deeper into history. So that's kind of where it all began. And then since then, I've just loved exploring more. And I feel like the discipline of history is really great because you get to think critically and question the world and your place in it and your ideas. So I've just not been able to leave since then. Describing
2: everything as a journey is such a cliche these days, but your transformation from a historian largely interested in Australia, which I think is what you were doing um, a lot in your undergraduate and then at the beginning of some of your graduate studies. So your journey from Australian history into Pacific history involves a literal journey, doesn't it? So tell us about that journey?
0: In my undergrad, I'd actually largely done European history because that's partly the university I was at did that really well. And so I was in my last year and I kind of was like, I can't come out with a history degree and then not know anything about the country I live in. So I picked the Australian history electives in my last year and I was just amazed by how little I knew about Australia. And I felt like, well, if I'm going to do further study, then I think I want it to be of the region that we live in and I was lucky enough to get to do an internship in my final semester at the South Australian Maritime Museum because I lived in Adelaide. And through doing that work, I became really interested in Australia's relationship with race. And so at that time I was looking at immigration and how people had migrated here. And also at that time was when all of the debates around the Pacific solution were happening and we were hearing a lot of discussion about who is Australian and who is entitled to live here. It was really fascinating to me that a migrant nation could then turn around to other migrants and say you can't come here and I felt like a lot of that was related to the way we viewed the people in our region and the people around us. I started reading broadly about immigration and refugees and I remember reading a chapter in a book that was talking about West Papua refugees in Papua New Guinea and I found this really interesting for two reasons. Firstly, because it was talking about Papua New Guinea, which was in a former Australian colony. And I was amazed about how little I knew about that region. And then secondly, because it was a case of dealing with refugees and the West Papuans were actually the first refugees to be housed in Manus Island. So that had a lot of kind of interesting connections with the present. So I found this chapter and that historian said, someone should really look at this. Naively, I was like, me, (laughs) I will look at this topic. During my honours year, I looked at West Papuan refugees and I was lucky enough to find archives in the um, Australian National Archives in Canberra. In the files there, there were West Papuan refugee case files. So these case files would have a personal statement and in that personal statement, that was the one chance that the West Papuans had to kind of describe why they were there so often they would use that as a chance to make a political statement so usually they would talk about how indonesia had come into the territory taken over and then they would list the ways in which they've been persecuted i had the opportunity to go to the un archives in new york i'd heard whispers that there might be some good files there When I got to the UN archives and I found a file that was literally labelled West Papuan petitions and I was like yes, (laughs) I found it and through those files was actually able to find letters of West Papuans describing their story and then from there I was like okay this is something that I can focus on from a West Papuan perspective. But that was quite intimidating to me because I'd never been to West Papua, I'd never been to Papua New Guinea, I didn't really know the region or many people so that then started a journey of trying to find West Papuans that lived in Australia and kind of get to know the activist community here because I wanted to get a sense of a West Papuan voice and how they would tell their story.
1: This is an interesting thing because Mm -hmm. your archival researches preceded your encounter with the people, but they're actually a kind of a stepping stone on the way to meeting the people you were studying. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So I kind of went on a bit of a reverse journey. Most people that study Pacific history, usually study it because of a personal connection. That's what I was just
1: thinking. I thought maybe you'd be telling us, so I made this trip to Papua New Guinea and became interested in the archives that route. But this is the opposite.
0: Yeah. So it's a very weird journey. It started from an intellectual interest. So once I kind of found this in the archives and learnt more about it, that was then when I would engage with the activist community. I was lucky enough that one of the researchers who'd previously been associated with Sydney Uni, that was at Western Sydney. Kami Webb-Gannon was a scholar, but also an activist. And so she was an amazing gateway for me into that community. She introduced me to a lot of the activists here. And then a lot of them had mentioned that there was a big refugee community in Papua New Guinea. So that, along with some connections that Sophie had given me with scholars who were working in Papua New Guinea, um, enabled me to do an initial trip to Papua New Guinea to um, kind of get a sense of that region and then how the West Papuan refugee community fit within Papua New Guinean society, because it's a little bit complicated, obviously, because there's been the border down the middle of New Guinea. And so West Papua and Papua New Guinea are very much distinct regions, but at the same time, there are cultural similarities. So a lot of West Papuans who are forced to leave Papua New Guinea find it easier to make their home in PNG than rather than going to Australia or to overseas that was kind of a journey into initially making contact. And then at the beginning of this year, I was actually able to spend a month in Papua New Guinea. And that was when I began doing oral history interviews. So I got to talk to a lot of the West Papuans who had been living in Papua New Guinea, many of whom who had come across the border in the period that I was studying in the 1960s.
2: So tell us a little bit about what it's like to plan for a trip to Papua New Guinea, because many Australians, when they hear PNG or Papua New Guinea, think of it pretty dangerous place and very few PhD students from Australia do any work there, what's it like traveling there, what's it like planning for traveling there, bring us into your experience.
0: Yeah, so I was initially a little bit intimidated partly because before my PhD I hadn't really traveled a lot overseas, Um, the UN trip to New York was actually my first time overseas by myself, so part of it is just intimidating as you're going into a whole different country with different ways of, especially when you're using archives, there's all these different regulations in every country. I'm sure you've both experienced that. So I was partly intimidated by the logistics, but then, yeah, it's also, it's a very remote place. It's not very touristy. There's not a lot of information available online. You can't just stay anywhere. So a big part of planning for that trip was trying to make sure I knew people who were in Papua New Guinea. So connecting with researchers who were working there, who I knew would be there during my time, was a big way that I felt more comfortable with going there and then staying at a place that I knew they were staying at and that where Papua New Guineans would feel comfortable coming and meeting me. So
1: this is principally yeah. Port Moresby.
0: In Port Moresby, yeah. yes. So that's and that also was what raised a number of concerns because Port Moresby some of the villages and all that a lot safer people do often travel there by themselves, but Port Moresby is a big city with all the problems of big cities. I, a lot of people had warned me and told me not to go and when I was there a lot of people were surprised they're like oh you're a you know young female researcher we can barely get <laughs> kind of older people to come but I really felt like it was important for me to go there even though I wasn't going to West Papua I was going to Papua New Guinea but I felt like in order to do this project justice in order to have a real sense of the stakes of this project and to understand the history that I needed to get to know um, the people and so it definitely was worth being away from Australia, being away from good internet and constant access to my family so I found it deeply enriching. What's it yeah. like Emma?
2: So if you had to <laughs> kind of bring listeners into yeah. you know, your moment kind of landing in Port Moresby with all the expectations that you had, tell us a little bit about what Port Moresby is like.
0: Yeah. So first of all, the surprising thing I found is that Australians can actually rock up in Port Moresby and get a visa on arrival, which was extremely surprising to me. So I remember as we were coming down, looking at the the landscape and feeling like it just looked very similar to Australia, but the water is just this vibrant blue. So I remember that was one of my first impressions. But landing, like the second the door opens, you just feel this like wave of hot humid air (laughs) and then from then on I was pretty much hot and sweaty the entire time that I was there. I was again surprised that everyone spoke to me in Australian accent and everyone just assumes if you're a white person there you're Australian which is very different because for those who've traveled overseas you get British Canadian so it was just interesting that people Papua New Guinean people greeted me like oh yes you're Australian we're familiar with you.
1: They are Um, much more familiar with us I suspect than the other way around. So they're prepared for you to arrive. For us, it's a big mystery going the first time.
0: Yeah, and I think that was one of the biggest revelations I had was that for me I was discovering a lot of things about Papua New Guinea, but for the Papua New Guinean people, they were very familiar with having a lot of Australians in PNG. And I was amazed when I got there that there were Australians everywhere.
1: You are listening to How Was It Really? It's interesting because you're getting into the way of working out how the rhythms work and you're familiarising yourself with the place. And I'm sure you're learning about all sorts of stories that you hear about the place as well. And that reminds me of something that you were saying in your work. In addition to calling yourself a historian, you refer to yourself as a storyteller. And indeed, your research in some way or other is always about how national groups in particular particularly the West Papuans, obviously, construct national narratives, and lying beneath that is the question of how, if you can't do that, your identity is constructed by others, or perhaps it's not constructed at all. As we've said, Papua is not really on Australian people's radar. In fact, they've been invisible to all sorts of other people as well. So, if I were to ask you an apparently simple question, I wonder if you can try to answer it, who are the West Papuans, and what is Papua?
0: West Papua is the region that occupies the western half of the island of New Guinea, which is the large island directly above Australia, which many of us don't see on our maps. I think that's part of the invisibility. And it was that region was formally colonised by the Dutch, while the other part was colonised by Germany, Britain and then Australia. So that's the first part that lot of, not a lot of us know is that unique yeah. colonial history. So during most of the Dutch time in that area. They mainly focused on their empire in Indonesia and in 1949 Indonesia actually got independence from the Dutch. From then the Netherlands kind of focused a little bit more on West Papua and so it's at this point that the West Papuans really encounter the Dutch presence and a lot of the West Papuans in the 1950s actually use this encounter as a way of getting resources and of kind of slowly forming connections across West Papua because it's actually a huge region with diverse people groups. And so a lot of them spoke different dialects. There wasn't a lot of interaction. That was a period for them of forming what became a Papuan nationality and forming themselves into a group that in the 1960s, they would call themselves West Papua and kind of came together under this flag. Part of the reason for doing this was that at the same time, Indonesia begins to make claims on the territory. And
1: this is what you mean when you say that Papua is twice colonized? Yes. Once by the Dutch? then you could say invaded by the Indonesians.
0: Yeah. so Indonesia from the second they got independence even before that started their campaign for West Papua because during the war they discovered that there was a lot of natural resources in West Papua that a lot of people wanted to get their hands on so Indonesia said where this whole region was a Dutch colony we are the successor state of that colony and therefore West Papua is now ours and so And they were very politically savvy. So part of their campaign was actually depicting West Papuans as Indonesians. And so West Papuan people then had only ever had the Dutch speaking for them, and they had the Indonesian people speaking for them, and they didn't have access to the international communities that they did. So in the 1960s, part of their work was actually intervening, rocking up at the UN, meeting different people and showing them, look, we are Melanesian people, we are different.
1: They're subjugated at first to colonial rule by the Dutch. Then they are invaded by Indonesian people and described Mm -hmm. by them. And then when they start struggling for their own national identity, they run into another set of problems, don't they? Different kinds of invisibility. Can you talk about that in respect of their relations with, say, Afro-American people in the US? Mm -hmm. African freedom struggles in Africa and so on. There's some really interesting problems there for the West Papuan people as well.
0: Yeah, so during this period, there's kind of a broader struggle for decolonization. And the way that this struggle is depicted is countries usually in Africa, Asia, Middle East, being freed from a European colonial control. And a lot of the push for this decolonization comes from connections that have been made between African-American activists and then African intellectuals. And they are actually very successful in pushing for this independence and pushing for visibility of African intellectuals and independence. So when West Papua try and begin their campaign, first against the Dutch, and then when Indonesia come in against Indonesia, they see the African leaders as natural allies because of their oppression on the basis of race. So the
1: African potential allies don't quite see it the same way.
0: At the same time, African and Asian nations have actually formed solidarities um, in opposition to another complicated thing that's happening during this period, which is the Cold War. So these countries have banded together because they don't want to be forced to play politics between the US and the Soviet Union.
2: Emma, bring us into this moment where West Papuans are negotiating with their former colonisers at the United Nations. What do African leaders see?
0: Initially, when West Papuans try and begin their campaign for independence, the only way they can get to the UN is by being part of the Dutch delegation. That kind of raises a lot of question for African leaders because they see that as potentially them being Dutch puppets. So the work that the West Papuans then have to do is to convince them that they're actually there of their own accord. And part of the way they do this is just through using their physical presence of showing African leaders, look, we are Melanesian people, they're dark skinned, We're not Indonesian people, and this is our own struggle.
1: And what you're trying to do with your work, in a sense, is put a face on this struggle, isn't it? You mentioned Melanesians. You should perhaps tell us about the etymology of that word, because that is loaded as well in ways that people may not be aware.
0: Yeah, so the category of uh, Melanesian people was originally an anthropological term that was used during the colonial period, and it was actually kind of a derogatory term. So Mela means black. Um, As in
1: melanoma. It's the Greek word for black and uh, it has negative connotations.
0: Melanesia is black islands. Other parts of the Pacific were named Polynesia, many islands. Micronesia, small islands. So the Melanesian people were actually the only ones who were labelled on the basis of their race.
1: So the problems just mount up, don't they? There's nomenclature as well as the fact that they are involved in a struggle that other people don't quite see because it's different from what's happening in Africa and so on. How do you go about identifying them in a way that brings out the narrative as they see it from their own point of view?
0: I think the biggest thing that I've tried to do is focus on using sources written by West Papuans. So, so much of this history, when you start using the sources that are colonial government, whatever, it kind of hijacks the narrative. So a big part for me has been going to sources that are written by West Papuans and following the story as it it involves them. So wherever they are, that's where this history goes.
2: Emma, it strikes me this is a really knotty history and it's made harder by the scattered nature of the sources you just mentioned, the different archives they're in. What's been the biggest challenge for you as a researcher doing this work and what's most rewarding, what keeps you going?
0: I think the biggest challenge or concern that I often come back to is claiming to write from a West Papuan perspective but not being West Papuan. So how do you claim to restore that voice while that voice not being your own? So a big way I've attempted to do this is by doing oral histories and and engaging with the West Papuan community. And that's also been what's been the most rewarding is getting to talk to people about their stories and their histories, um, histories that haven't really been represented in history books. So many of the people that I talked to in Papua New Guinea were really excited that this story was being written and would say to me, I can't wait for this to be a book because I will show my grandchildren. So I think that's one of the things that is challenging but is also has been the most rewarding part.
1: It sounds a really exciting process. And um, so I hesitate to ask the question. When you get to know people, when you talk about their stories and they express that kind of enthusiasm for seeing your work in print so that they can read about themselves and pass it down, What challenges, if any, does that raise for you as a historian? Because we're always taught to be detached from our sources, and here you are clearly engaged with the people in the most positive sense. But does this create methodological challenges for you as a historian?
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I had to grapple with when I first started working. But I think as I've worked more and talked to more people, I think that it just makes me more aware of the stakes in the history, but I don't think any history that we do is devoid from a perspective. All of us ask questions for certain reasons and I think any good history attempts to in some way intervene in the present. Whereas with my topic that's a bit more explicit but I think at the same time that creates an accountability. So how do I show that the claims I'm making are really based on evidence and are based on history rather than being based on just a political agenda.
1: I think that's a really interesting point because in a way, I think what your work does is simply make more explicit the kinds of things that all of us historians should be thinking about. And that is surely to do with an ethical engagement with sources and that we should all be thinking about all the time. Uh, It's just that your project makes us particularly poignant, I think, which was the word we used near the beginning.
2: Absolutely. I think this is a kind of a good time then, Emma, to return to our original question which speaks to a lot of those themes that you've brought up, and that is, how did Papuan people become invisible to the rest of the world?
1: Well, there are so many reasons why this happens, but I think one of the most powerful that Emma has brought to light is how crucial it is to generate and control a narrative and how narrative can erase national groups as well as make them visible. That's something we should be very aware of as Australians because we are very preoccupied with manufacturing narratives that show us in a positive light. We pay less attention to the way in fact that we erase certain places and peoples from our consciousness. And maybe it is a good idea to reflect on our own mental maps of our own country and more widely of the globe. I'm sure there are dark spots and gaps and blind spots. I can think of some on my own map of the world as well. This might even be a way of people thinking about what they might like to do as budding historians. Think of an area where there's a lacuna and go there and try to fill it in the way that Emma has been doing. It's been fantastic talking to you, Emma. Thank you so much for, for coming in.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Remember that you can download this episode of How Was It Really? from our website where you will also find information including links to Emma's blog. See you next time.
1: How Is It Really?, is written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney.